careful now with everything I, I touch. Um, yeah, had you told me 11 years ago that Chad and I had been standing here doing these kinds of things together, I don't think either one of us would have believed it. I don't know what you were. Were you still an intern back then? He was on staff at New Life, and we met at a men's retreat that was many years ago. And God has, God has done something through our friendship that has been rare. I actually, I share the story of our friendship everywhere I go, even outside the U.S., as, especially with men, as I try to stir men to a new level of kind of friendship together. I think that there's something that's desperately missing in our culture which is that kind of Jonathan and his armor bearer kind of brotherhood that learns to unite around the deep things of Jesus. I remember sitting in his office, we would get together and we would just rumble. I'd walk in the door and I knew two to three hours were coming and it usually begin with these words, go. That's all he would say. And he just expected me to have something to share. He talked about his, you know, the switch being broken in the on position. He expected it to be broken. And we would just share out of the overflow of what God was speaking to us. We would speak it to one another. And I would just feel my faith grow during that time together. And I had, after 20 years of ministry, I had never had experiences like this, let me say. And I remember sometimes leaving those times together thinking, the way I want to plant a church is like this. I want Chad and I to sit in a room and have a conversation. And I just want to bring other people into that conversation because if they come, something will impact them because of what's happening here. And I think it's what Jesus prays about in John 17, that our unity would be a converting witness to the world. That was only a concept to me before I was 40 years old. I had been to seminary far too many times, spent too many years studying, been a pastor for 20 years, and then something happened in my life. And now I have a group of four men in fact, my wife was talking about it yesterday. She was talking about our relationship and says, but then he's got these four guys and it's like his, it's all like his other wife, these four men, that he does life with. But I think it's crucial. I, I don't know how to do life a different kind of way. That's just an aside. That's not where we're going. I don't even know why I'm talking about this. But I just say I love this man. I, I feel privileged to be here. I'm excited to be here and to share with you uh, what I feel like the Lord has for us. So would you just join me, and let's just get low before the Lord and ask his blessing on this time. So let's pray together. Father, I come here and just, I'm bowed low with humility, Lord, that you would bring me here to this place. And Lord, I pray that even now, Lord, you would grant us humble hearts Lord, for you say it's the humble heart that receives the word of God implanted. So, Lord, we pray that you would humble our hearts, that we would recognize that we are poor and needy, that we have nothing unless you give us something, that we can receive nothing unless it's given from above, that we have nothing that you've not already given us like we just said. And so we bow low. And, Lord, we come with repentant hearts, knowing that our hearts wandered this week, and Lord, we repent of all that. We repent of believing the wrong things, of acting the wrong ways, of thinking the wrong ways. And we pray, Lord, that even today, this moment, that times of refreshing would come from your presence. And Father, even as we come and we look at truth, Lord, we say we believe, but we pray that you would help our unbelief. 
We pray that your grace would overflow with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus, that we might believe all the more, that we'd be seized by the person who is truth and the truth of the living God to live a different kind of way, to believe a different kind of way, and to be a different kind of person, to be that follower of Jesus. Father, I thank you for the season that we're in, a season that from one perspective seems so dark and so uncertain, so tumultuous. Lord, but from another perspective, Lord, we see that you're opening doors, that you're moving in ways you've not moved, at least in my life. And Lord, I pray that we would have eyes to see it. Not only that we would rejoice in it, but that we would join it. That we would line up our lives with what you are doing. So Lord, I pray that you would come and reveal that even as we open your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Chad and I were having one of those conversations I just told you about at, where did we meet? Where's, where's your... Try and Drini's. That's the old, that was the first spot. The first time I met with Chad, I drove three and a half hours to have a cup of coffee with him at Andrini's. Three hour cup of coffee, and then I drove home three and a half hours. Um, I just knew this is what I was meant to do, but we don't meet there anymore. Now it's Tribe. So we were at Tribe Monday or Tuesday, I think it was Tuesday. And he asked me, he said, hey, I, I want you to preach on Sunday. And I knew what kind of week I was going to have. I was going to be painting this guy's house, this, these, this couple's house, which I just finished. And uh, I was kind of hesitant. And uh, I, I knew that there was no way forward but, by, but, uh, but saying yes. And uh, he said, look, this is what you, I want you to do. If I could cut you up, cut you open, I want to know what kind of makes you tick and bleed on the inside. What makes you pulse? I want you to speak on that. I want you to bring that today. And so that's actually what I want to do. Um, Because there's something that I feel like God did with me, and it began actually those 10 and 11 years ago. And it's something that I'm still walking in. It's something that I'm still trying to understand. It's something that I still want to seize me at an ever deeper level. We're told that Jesus only did the things that he saw the Father doing. That's quite a paradigm statement for us. Jesus looked at the Father. He knew that the Father was working until now, and so Jesus himself was working, but he was doing the works that he saw the Father working. You ask nine out of ten people in the U.S. who say they follow Jesus, what are you doing? What are you doing in ministry? And like, hey, we have a five-year strategic plan. You know, we're, we, we got this thing that we're building over here. We got this thing that we're doing over here. I'm going to go home and, you know, do these things. And some of that might be very good. But if we ask the question, what is the Father doing? What are you convinced that the Father has committed himself to do in church history? That thing he's been doing since Paul walked, since the, the early fathers down through the ages, what is the Father doing, and what has he been doing, and are you lining yourself up with that? What has God the Father committed himself to do in the sending of his son, 
sort of written this in the blood of his son, so committed himself to do, do you know what that is? And have you postured yourself to join him in the work that he's doing? At 40 years old, I remember standing on my front yard and saying, God, I have no idea what you have promised to do. I have no idea what your kingdom is about, although I've preached about your kingdom. I have no sense of expectation. I have no sense of hope of what you're doing. I've heard a lot of strategic plans. I've written them. I've read them. I've read countless books. But I realized I was having a sober moment where I didn't want to be just an eternal optimist in terms of the kingdom of God. I wanted to know what God had committed himself to do in the blood of his son. This thing that was non-negotiable. This thing that God said, whatever else happens, I'm going to do this and you can take this to the bank. You can line yourself up with this. You can put expectation in this. Let it seize you. This is what I'm doing. But what I knew was that I had no idea what that thing was. And so I just said for the, in a way that I'd never said it before. I said, God, teach me. By the way, this is the season that Chad and I met. Perfect timing. He kind of knows this book a bit. And this took me on a journey, especially through the Old Testament, beginning to read, and especially the prophets. The prophets became my disciplers. I tell people I was discipled by dead people. Not just the prophets, people like George Mueller and Hudson Taylor and people who understood what God was doing in the world, and they lined themselves up with these great promises and purposes of God, even though everything in the world and everything in their life seemed to be set against the fulfillment of those promises in their life. They went forward and they believed because they were convinced, not just that this was something that God was doing, but that God was so committed to it that he sent his son to the cross as a seal of this thing that he was promising to do in the world. This vision of what God is doing is something that we're going to talk about today, and it's the centerpiece of my life right now. So the Lord has me with, I have my foot in a few things, and I'm not going to talk about all of those things, but one of the things that my, one of the places my foot is, is in YWAM. How many, for, any former YWAMers here? I know we at least got one. Oh, we got two. Did I see? Okay, well, me, three. So God has put me in YWAM, and YWAM is the largest Christian mission organization in the world. It is a place I would have never saw myself years ago. I, in fact, uh, when I decided to go, I had some pastors here from the Central Coast sit me down and say, Rick, do not go. This will be the most regressive thing you've ever done. You've been a pastor for years. You're going to go sit under a 19-year-old which is what exactly I did, who'd been a Christian for nine months, and he was my staff leader. I remember meeting him, and he said, Rick, my task is to disciple you over the next three months. I said, all right, Lord, this is how we're going to roll. And so this 19-year-old who'd been a Christian for nine months uh, proceeded to kind of disciple me. But I knew that God was sending me into YWAM, and I didn't know why. We had built a house in Texas, a custom house for my wife, the sense of calling came. We finished the house, and three weeks later, we sold it. 
I don't always recommend doing that. <laughs> and off to YWAM we went. And while I was in YWAM, when you go to YWAM, you do two parts. You do a lecture phase, and then you do a outreach phase. And while I was in lecture phase, and I went to Kona, uh, Hawaii, and like, hey, someone's got to suffer for Jesus over there, right? So, <laughs> so that's where the Lord sent us. And one of actually, one of my four, so I've got Chad and three others that are like my inner circle. One of those in, guys in my inner circle is actually on staff with YWAM in Kona, has been there since like 2000. And he was the one summoning me to Kona, so that's why we went there. But during the lecture phase, another base locally was wrapping up. And at the end of your time in YWAM, they do something called debrief which is, this is that time when you're going to transition from your outreach and your five to six months with YWAM, and you're going to go back home. And whoever was supposed to speak at this base didn't show up, and it happens quite. And they asked me, hey, I think this guy over here has been a pastor. Why don't we have him come fill in? We don't know who he is, but he might have something to say. <laughs> so... They asked my leaders, and my leaders said, hey, we'll, we'll let him go. So they let me out for a week to go um, speak to this group. And little did I know that it was that experience that was going to begin to shape and open the door for what's now been five, five, close to five years of sort of running with YWAM. And there's something that God has put in me that's a kind of urgency, if you will. Because usually when I'm in the room, I'm in the room with people that are the age of my kids or younger. So my sons are 28 and 27. So we're, in fact, we have our first grandson coming next month. We were here for a, we were here for a, my grand, my to-be grandson's uh, baby shower, which was awesome. In fact, we borrowed these tables. <laughs> Thank you. Um, So in speaking to this group of people, the urgency that I have is that I very often find myself like on D-Day in World War II. Seen Band of Brothers? I'm a huge World War II kind of buff. In the invasion of Normandy, you know, these, these guys like the 101st Airborne, they would come in on these gliders or on these planes, and they would fill the plane, and they'd all be hooked up with a line. And as they got to the drop zone, the red button would turn green, and that would say that, you know, they, they have a few minutes until drop or something like that. And one of the things I recognized is that God had brought me into YWAM, be, and, and he'd placed me at the door of, of this airplane. And this doorway is like debrief. And I'm the last person that they see as they come down the aisle and they jump out the window. And as they jump out the window, they're going to the life, and they're going back home. They're going back to what God has called them into. But I've been around long enough. In fact, at our church in Long Beach, we had 10 YWAMers. Eight of them lost their faith as they came home. One of them was the guy who's now in Kona, and I, I don't remember what happened to the other. But I've seen just carnage of so many YWAMers who had come home. And so I watch these guys, and they come, and they're coming forward, and they're about to jump out. And what I see as I look at them 
is that so many of them have nothing on. They've got their boxers. They're coming. They're hooked on the line. They've got no parachute. They've got no gun. They've got nothing else on. And they're about to jump out the window. And they're looking at me and saying, Rick, I got this. But I know as they, before, that they, before they jump that they don't. Because if I ask them a bunch of questions as they come up the aisle, do you know what God has equipped you with? Do you know how to live the life of faith? Do you know how to live out of the realities of the gospel? Do you know how to take the promises of God and believe and pray them forward? Do you know your identity? Have you encountered the love of God? The answer for most of that is no. And yet they're going to go home, and I know that as they hit the land, there's a shaking that's going to come. It's for 90% of YWAMers, a shaking. It's a kind of PTSD, if you will. I even had a, I had a, we even had a, a measure of that ourselves. And there's a disillusionment and there's a discouragement that happens sort of as they come home, even a spiritual depression. And it's because they're landing in an environment that they're unprepared for, even though this is where they came from. But one of the things I'm recognizing more and more is that the PTSD that these YWAMers are coming home with is actually the pervasive spiritual condition of most of evangelicalism. They're just feeling the spirit of what's present when they land. They're experiencing a church where hope is not prevalent, where faith is not active, where they're not seeing God do what God has promised to do, the things that they saw in a foreign land, things that they knew about. They come home and like, where is God moving? What is God doing? In fact, they get shaken so much, they begin to question, was any of that real? Because I don't see it anymore. And so they go through this tumbling and this shaking that happens. And one of the things that's stirring in me more than ever, and I still feel the need, like, brothers, you need, brothers and sisters, you need to know how to live out of the gospel. Galatians 2.14, you, know you need to know how to live and step with what God in Christ has already accomplished for you. You need to learn how to live out of the victory that Jesus has over Satan as your protector that we just sang about, right? You need to learn about his victory over sin and its power, and you need to live over that, live in that. You need to learn to live in your identity. This is the life of faith that we've been called into, and so I believe all of that, and I still believe that that's crucial. I just got back from Mexico where I did this very thing with this group of people, and it's amazing still for me to ask the question, so now when you go home and you jump out of that door, what are you going to do and to get the glazed donut look? Like, I really don't know. Which is the look of the church? And I'm going to say, as a person who went to seminary for six years, and that's nothing to boast about because Chad met me at the back end of that and knew I was a train wreck. I had no idea either. For all of my education, for all the things that I had done and learned, I, I didn't know what to do. We've lost our way in terms of discipleship. We have terms, and it's like princess bride. We don't know what that word means anymore. We all say we're engaged in discipleship. We don't know what we're actually discipling very often. And that was very true of me. We would just read books. We would start north through this Bible and head south. 
you know, and like, hey, whatever we hit, we hit. And yet not knowing what the fundamentals of what it meant to be the follower of Jesus. I really want to get at one central thing. But there's one thing that's captivating me that I'm, I feel urgent about. It's the one thing that I'm zealous for you about and for the evangelical church in the West about. It is the thing that it's causing, I think God is changing my call because I'm driven to see a new generation have what we're about to talk about imparted and instilled in them. I've been a pastor and there's a part of me that's dying because I, I, feel, I feel a passion to pastor. But I feel a greater passion for the glory of Jesus and for the future of his church and for his purposes in this world. And so I think some people are being called to surrender a thing that they've known and they've loved to train a generation to go out and jump out that door and to thrive in the purposes of God in the land, right? So this is my call. And it comes from, where, from what God was speaking to me those 10 years ago. And we're going to read out of Isaiah, oh, Isaiah chapter 40. So this is one of those sections we could read a lot. We're just going to have to bounce around a bit. So we're going to start in uh, Isaiah 40, verse 3. And I want to start here specifically because if you read the Gospel of Mark, it says chapter 1, the Gospel of Mark, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and he begins to quote this passage, and that's crucial for what we're going to look at here. Mark quotes Isaiah, and Mark is saying the time frame for the, everything that's spoken of in Isaiah is now. This is what the Messiah is doing. This is the purpose, these are the purposes of God that he's unfolding. You need to understand, that's what Mark wants us to understand. What is God doing in the Messiah, and it's happening now. So Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I just want to jump forward. I really want to read a lot, but we just can't. Let's jump forward all the way to verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God. We just sang this too. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint nor grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. 
But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Verse, chapter 41, verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach and let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. And then I'm just going to jump to verse 17 of that same chapter. And we're just going to read to verse 20, and that will be it. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. This was the vision that God gave to me 10 years ago, right out of this. It's a vision that actually begins all the way back in Isaiah 6. I just want to unpack this a little bit because I want us to understand what's happening here. Isaiah 6 is that section that is kind of familiar to many of us. It's the call of Isaiah in chapter 6 where it says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, and high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal they had taken with the thongs of the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. There's, a, there's another way to read what the angels are saying in verse 3 where it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You can translate that next phrase. Let the whole earth be full of his glory. It's more of a prayer. Let the whole earth be full of, a glory, of his glory. It's an anticipation of what God is going to do in the revelation of the rest of the book and in the revelation of, of history. So what's happening in the throne room is that the angels, seeing the very splendor of Jesus, the splendor of God encountering the weight of his glory, the majesty of his person, 
They are so seized by this vision that they cannot imagine a single square inch of the created universe where the glory of God is not being lifted up and magnified. They cannot imagine such a thing. Let the whole world be full of his glory, and they're seized by this vision because they've seen a vision of the glory of God. And what's happening in the book of Isaiah is actually the unfolding of this prayer and of this vision for the whole earth to be filled with the glory of God. What Jesus does when he comes in the time frame of this vision is he's telling you and he's telling me it's begun now. The glory of God is beginning to move out, and we're going to kind of unpack this, and cover the planet. And it's happening because I came as the Messiah. And you can put hope in this, and you can count on this, and you need to align with this because this is what the Father is doing. Right? This is crucial. When the angels pray this way, it's not just because they have a theology of mission. Hey, did you read this latest book on mission? Hey, I did too. Hey, it would be, wouldn't it be great if the glory of God, you know, covered the earth? Yeah, it would be. It, it's not a theology of mission. There's nothing wrong. We read theology. But it's something that's much deeper than that in those angels. There's a deposit They've encountered truth. They've encountered ultimate reality in the person of God and in the person of Jesus. They beheld his glory. They reflect his glory. And now they want to see his glory at any expense fill the universe. This is what Paul wants for us when he talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where he says all of us sort of like Moses beholding like in Isaiah 6 the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree of glory, really, by the gospel. That's what he's going to say there. As we behold the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, as we look at the face of Jesus through the truth of the gospel, something begins to happen to us. We're changed from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. And what I want you to consider is that it, as that happens, the prayer of Isaiah 6 is beginning to be filled. Christ in us, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. Think about this. Could it be Colossians 1.27 is actually about Christ in you the hope is, is actually the hope of the glory of God filling the earth. As Christ manifests himself in you and in you and in you and in me and in each one of us, we're being transformed from one degree of glory, and the glory of God is pervasively spreading through the earth. This is the vision of Isaiah. But as you go through Isaiah and, you, and the people of God see this and hear this in the Old Testament, they begin to look at each other and say, there's something about you that doesn't reflect the glory of God, and there's something about me that doesn't reflect the glory of God. In fact, they're not even aware enough to know that because their hearts are hardened and they're a stiff-necked people. 
But through the prophet Isaiah, God writes to them and he says, look, you guys are my people. In fact, you are my witnesses. You are the people that are to bear witness to the world that I am the living and true God. But here's the problem with my people, the people of Israel. You have eyes and you don't see. You have ears and you don't hear. You have a mind that does not understand. And so you're not able to bear witness to me, the true and living God. So he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to cause water to flow in the wilderness. I'm going to cause that which wasn't to be. I'm going to bring life where there was death. And I'm going to do this for my people, my witnesses. Where do we hear that term again? Jesus. You are my witnesses. You are the people that I've given eyes to so that you behold my glory. Ears so you hear my voice. Eyes so that you see what I'm doing as I do what the Father does as you would do what I do. Because you abide in me, you do what I do. Right? 1 John 2. We are his witnesses who are bearing witness to this world that we follow and we worship a living and true God. Look, this country needs to see and experience a different kind of story coming from the church. They don't need our apologetics as much. I'm not dismissing apologetics. They don't even need the clearest articulations of sort of Christian of a Christian worldview. What they need are people who have the fingerprint of God on them. People who've been marked by the glory of God and who, because of that, carry a different story. This is the only thing that's going to win the day. Is saying, I knew you, and formerly you lived this way, but now I've met Jesus, now you've seemed to meet Jesus, and now you live this way. Formerly I was, now I met Jesus, and now I this. Not formerly I, I lived this way, I met Jesus, and I still live that way. I once was blind, I met Jesus, and I'm still blind. I once was lost, I met Jesus, I'm still lost. That's what the world expects from us. They expect that Christianity is a moral position an ethic, a worldview, a set of an ideas, what they don't expect is that the living God is altering people's lives so that they now bear witness to the fact that there must be a God in heaven because nothing explains the reality of what I'm seeing but that there is a true and a living God who has marked that person with his resurrection power, right? That's the vision of Isaiah 6, the glory of God filling the earth through a people filled with Christ, so marked by the power of the living God that the world looks at us and says, there is no other explanation for what I see but for the resurrected Jesus. This is why I think in the book of Isaiah we're also given the story of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a great story. It's the story of Assyria surrounding the people of Jerusalem when Hezekiah is king. There's 200,000 people in the army 
of Assyria, and there's 20,000 people at most inside Jerusalem. And Hezekiah and the people know that that army has wiped out every other nation, including Israel to the north, that has called on their God. And he makes it, and the press secretary called the Rabshakeh makes it clear. Hey, look, they've all called on their God, and we've wiped all of them out. We've annihilated them, and as we did it to you, them, we're going to do it to you. Don't let your king Hezekiah make you trust in words. Words aren't going to help you. And so Hezekiah takes this thing and he goes into the temple and he prays the, te- he prays the prayer you would pray. If there's an army out there that's w- waiting to disembowel you as you walk out that door, how are you going to pray? Are we going to have a real prayer meeting in here? We're going to have a real prayer meeting in here. If there are 200,000 people surrounding us who want to just do things that are ungodly to us, we are going to pray like this place has never prayed. So they pray like that. Lord, you need to deliver us, 2 Kings 19. But then Hezekiah says something that, that grabbed me. He gets the vision. Lord, how else are they going to know that you're the true God? This is not about us anymore. If that army surrounds us, it's actually not about us. It's about that neighborhood there, and it's about that neighborhood there, and the people in your work. How else are they going to know that we serve the living and true God because none of the other gods show up because they aren't gods? But we said our God shows up. We said he's the protector. He said he's my refuge, my deliverer, my ever-present help. Is that just a confession and a creed, or is that who you are, and do we believe that, right? So Hezekiah prays this, God, this is about you, and it's about your glory. It's not about us. And so God shows up, right? And it's a picture. That's why we're given that. It's a picture of God's glory being made manifest through his poor and needy people. Because we're never in anything other than a position of being poor and needy, like Hezekiah. On my last trip to Kona, I got to speak to a group of, in fact, we're going to speak to them again. In fact, this time I'm taking Chad, I'm telling you now. I already told him. I got to speak to a group of leaders from Facebook uh, Dropbox, Google, all those companies. Uh, a bunch of them from San Francisco sent, a bunch of those leaders came to Kona, stirred by the Lord, and were on the island uh, to meet together, followers of Jesus. Kind of aware that God is doing something in this world and something that involves them. And now they're actually, they had come, they've left, and they're coming back, and I'm going to be speaking to them, but this time I want Chad to come. And I walked in this room, and I talked about this passage with them. I said, you know what, most of you have done great things. You're overachievers. You know, you, you guys score well on everything, you know, and, you know, you, you've, you've seen great things, you've built great things. And I said, and that's great. 
But I said, you need to catch the vision of Isaiah 41.20. This vision that exceeds your capacity. It exceeds human resourcefulness. It exceeds anything that you can do in the natural. That's the vision of the kingdom of God. It's a vision where the nations see and consider that the hand of the Lord has done this because there is no explanation. I can see that you're a gifted person. I can see that you have talents and abilities and all of these various things. But there is no explanation for what I see happening through you and through your ministry but for the presence of the living God. And I called them to an Isaiah 41.20 kind of vision. It's the same vision I'm beginning to call this, these young people to. Like, you've got to begin to not just answer the question that everybody else is going to ask you when you get home. They're going to ask you, what are you going to do now? So the question I want to ask you is very different, and it's, what do you believe now? What do you believe God is doing? What do you believe he's called you to do? What do you think he's actually called you to do the work of believing in? Do you know the answer to that? What are you going to believe when you go home? It's a picture of transformational power. We live in a neighborhood in Phoenix. Our neighborhood bird is the police helicopter. We have bullets running down our street. I pick up stuff off my driveway and walkway that you shouldn't pick up because that's the kind of street we live on. It's a rough place. We move there on purpose. I remember sitting there, and we have a big bay window. And we looked out there, and I said, what do you see when you look in this neighborhood? I said, do you see a neighborhood that's too dark, too sinful, too lost, too beyond hope? What do you see? Or do you see that God is committed to something in the blood of his son that says it's not too far gone, not too lost, not too evil, not too dark. Because God has bled on a cross to do the impossible, to thread camels through the eyes of needles, to part a Red Sea, to defeat an army of 200,000, to cause the dead to come to life. I said, when you walk out this door into this neighborhood, you have to believe that. You have to believe that. We don't just go do ministry. We don't just go do evangelism. Before you go, you have to believe something. Chad remembers me. I've got a friend who speaks at abortion clinics in Florida. And he's seen hundreds of people come to faith. And I remember asking him years ago. I, in fact, actually, when I was here on the Central Coast, I said, John, if you could give me one piece of advice, what would you give me? Because I've been captivated by this guy's ministry. I could tell you stories of just unbelievable stories. And he said, Rick, I've got one thing to tell you. He said, you have to believe this. He said, I get sent people all the time, young people, and they know it, but they don't believe it. We have a confessional theology. Like, we can state all this and we can sing all this, but when we leave and walk out those doors, we have an operational theology that's not in line with very often what we say and what we sing and what we tell one another. We've got to have those things line up in our life. Yeah. 
We've got to begin to believe that God is committed, that this is what God is doing in the world. He's raising up and in generation, and he's imparting in them, this is 2 Corinthians 4, he's imparting in them this seed, this weight of his glory that seizes them, like those angels where they say, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how this is going to turn out. This may cost me everything, but I cannot imagine my city where the glory of God is not being manifest. If it doesn't have my name on it, I don't care. If it doesn't have my denominational name on it, I don't care. What I care is the weight of his glory being seen through transformed lives through this city. I want to say God is opening that door. There are things happening in this world that blow my mind. I, I just have never seen God do what he's doing right now. And so on one hand, things look dark and looks like they're getting darker. But at the same time, things are getting light and getting lighter. We in this church have to confess that we've lost our way so much of the time. We've put so much stock into, is this the right color? Is this, you know, the, whatever it might be, right? Have we set it up rightly? Do we got the right mojo going in this room? You know, the feng shui is out of balance here. Whatever. We've done silly stuff in the church. So these angels just must think, Lord, what are you doing with these people? <laughs> and give some glory to that person, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. There's a generation that needs to be raised up. They don't need skills. They don't need a, you know, a better personality. They don't, like, they don't need to go to seminary. They need to walk in the reality of that which I've seen and touched with my hands, you know, heard, this I impart to you. I will not speak about the thing except for the thing that Christ has done in me. I'm going to go and carry this stewardship of the glory of God that he's put in me. I have a stewardship, I have a responsibility, but more than that, I have an urgency to carry that into this world. I think God has uniquely equipped your pastor. But because he's your pastor, I believe a lot, of some, a, a lot about most of you that I don't know. That God has instilled because you like being around him. That God has instilled something in you. And something may be growing, and it may look like I'm I'm developing this growing dissatisfaction and kind of loathful hatred for sin. And I ache to live a different kind of life. I ache to line up with the purposes of God. And I know I might need to be retooled. I believe God brought me to the Central Coast to retool me after, at 40 years old. Like, Rick, you've been tooled, but it's all wrong. So let's just start all over again. And that's what he did. He retooled me. I believed the wrong stuff. I acted, I had to go back and repent to so many people, starting with my wife and my family, because of what I represented. It's so funny, I have all these notes. I didn't touch any of them. I don't know even why I'm looking at this thing. I've been looking at this like, might as well be written in Chinese. 
Folks, I just want to invite you into this. Look, if you say, man, wherever I'm at, I long for that, but I'm just not there. That's the great thing about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is repent and believe. But I'm not, so repent and believe. But I, repent and believe. That's, that's always the distance that we are away from that. But repent, Mark 1.15. Just repent and believe. Do you want to carry this? Do you want to steward this? Let me tell you what. Don't ask, don't answer that question lightly. I'm not going to just invite you up here. Because I think you need to grapple with what God is asking of you. It's cost us dearly. Are you ready? Do you want to steward the weight of his glory? Do you want to steward the weight of his glory? Do you want to see a movement, not just of church planting or ministry busyness, do you want to see a movement of glory through this land? It's, it's going to cost. The other side of costing is always life. You die, you live. You die, you live. Death, resurrection. But I believe something about this place. I believe some, God is doing something here. And I want to invite you into that. To that stewardship, to this thing that God is doing, this thing that God has promised to do in his son. I told Chet, I don't know what time I started. I it had to be a long time ago. Um, I don't know where we are. Uh, I usually look at my watch. So I'm just going to say that you know, we're, we're coming to the end here. But I don't know if, brother, you wanted to come up and speak into this. How many just sense that responding to this word would be appropriate right now? And what I love about Rick, and I've known very few people as closely for 10, 10 or 12 years, how many since the faith level rise in the room? It's not hype. I'm serious. Like that, my own spirit is like, and I think we should respond. I think God wants to mark this day for our church and for our lives with this message and this this invitation to steward the weight of his glory amen and so i actually want rick to pray over us but if you if you are sensing and it's not a flippant i want to respond it's repent and believe but if in a in a significant way you would say you have sensed the holy spirit awaken something in your heart as it pertains to the invitation to carry the weightiness of god's goodness and glory for your family for your workplace, for your sphere of influence, your relational networks. Could you just stand on your feet just in a, in a significant way? The Lord's inviting you into what Rick has been sharing and the promises of the gospel of God to glorify his son. I am standing and I'm going to hand it back over to Rick. And I just want you to just receive this prayer and these promises together. So come on up, man. I just want you to pray for us. Father, even as we get glimpses of your glory, we've seen so little. 
Father, if the weight of who you are really seized us, Lord, it would captivate us so much more than it does. And yet, Father, as we talk about the weight of your glory, we're talking about something that's wonderful. We're talking about the full splendor of who you are. You're a God who rejoices over us to do us good. You sing over us, Lord, with a loud singing full of glory. Your righteousness is perfect in all your ways. What else, what else would we want to steward but that? What is, what is a greater privilege, Lord, than carrying your weight? But, Lord, we know that we're broken vessels. We're pot, pots of clay. Who's sufficient for these things? Lord, I know that we aren't. Lord, but you say part of the good news of the gospel is that you make us sufficient. You give us what we don't have. So, so, Lord, I pray even right now that you would impart, that you would come, Holy Spirit, that you would begin to ignite the fire of within, that that fire would yearn for expression, that you would find us in gatherings of prayer. We summon, Lord, your glory to come. I pray this prayer meeting would fill. I pray that new prayer meetings would launch. Lord, I pray that your glory would cover this city and this valley. Father, we're asking, Lord, we know we, this is something that we cannot do. We can do a lot of things, but Lord, we can't manifest or manufacture your glory. You have to impart it. And, Lord, because you're good and you've committed over us to do us good, Lord, everywhere where there's a desire for that glory, myself included, I pray that you would come and just grant us that imparting of that weight of your glory. That it would manifest with joy and peace and with love and with faith. Faith, hope, and love, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this people. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing and what you're going to do here. Thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of this body, this church. Oh, Lord, I pray that the, the nations that surround this church would be different because Cornerstone is here, which is going to be what? Radiant. Radiant. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Wasn't that amazing, just real quick, how Jade chose all of those songs about wilderness? And see, we had, I didn't know how many are thankful there's a Holy Spirit who's faithful to form Jesus. Here's what I want to do. Number one, you're dismissed. Uh, we, we have a budget item where we give to guest speakers, so we're sending him with a blessing. But this morning, I was up early just talking to Jesus. I'm not going to preach. Chill out. And I, uh, I almost made Rick and Katie missionary cards because that, that's what they are, but I didn't want to do it without asking permission. So too late, but I, I will make them. But I want us also, we have, so we have a check that's from the church, but if you want to come and if you have a checkbook, Rick Schaefer, I'll help you spell it. Just in a significant way, I believe Rick and Katie, his ministry to the nations through Youth with a Mission, that's YWAM, we're going to partner. How many want to partner and just see God's glory just spread all over the world? And so, you don't, I just, unapologetically, if you want to come so into their ministry and the various bases that they have access to all over the planet to, sh to, to steward what Rick just released to us, I want to just, you can come up here. 
I'll get a basket. Someone can start moving, get me something to, to uh, receive a special offering in addition to what, we, what we're already going to give them as a church. Can I get a thumbs up and just say amen? I'll wait up here. Come and talk to me. I'll help you get the funds to the right place. I love you. Bless you. Have an awesome week. Give somebody a fist bump. Tell them you carry his glory.